It's great to see all of you here today. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. How do you like the shades? want to thank Eric uh, Cooper for his uh, leadership and vision on that. And he, with Mario and I think Eric's brother-in-law and members of the Borns team, were instrumental in getting these up for our service today. So we're so thankful uh, that they have been able to accomplish this for our church body this morning. I, uh, I'm now praying that the sun will come out so that you guys can benefit from the shade. But it is great to see all of you here, and happy Father's Day to uh, the men, the dads that are here uh, this morning. We do want to take a moment to honor the, the dads. So if you are here and you are a father or a grandfather, this would include expectant fathers. Could you please stand? Excellent. And I see some men getting out of their cars and standing as, as well. Uh, we do have a gift for you today, and I hope you guys uh, were able to get these as, they, uh, as you came in uh, to the parking lot this morning. This is a signature coin uh, that has the Cornerstone logo on the front of it, and on the front side it says, Helping People to Journey from Brokenness to Wholeness Through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then on the back are the seven uh, pillars of our men's ministry. These are the seven characteristics, um, the seven things that all Cornerstone men have in common. And these seven things are weakness, ignorance, and failure. And number four, a humble willingness to confess those three things, our weakness, our ignorance, and our failure Number five, a great Savior. And number six, prayer. We cry out in our weakness, ignorance, and failure to this great Savior, Jesus Christ. And because we do that, there's a seventh pillar, and that is hope. Hope for ourselves and for those that we lead. And so we hope this signature coin will be something that reminds you uh, of uh, these things and will encourage you to lead uh, your families and to lead from a place of not only brokenness, but also confident hope in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, moms, uh, we were not gathered here on this campus for Mother's Day, so you were not able to get your mug on Mother's Day. We tried to get those out to you moms as you came into the parking lot uh, this morning. If you're here and you did not, as a man, get a signature coin or, as a mom, get a Mother's Day mug. Uh, we have them on the table right here by the stage, and you're welcome to come up after the service and to get uh, one of those. If you are watching by live stream and you're obviously not here today and you would like to get a mug or a signature coin, please call the church office and we'll do everything we can to make arrangements to get that uh, to you. Well, let me take a moment uh, before we get into the Word for this morning and, and just pray for you men and pray for all of us in this church body. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of prayer, the opportunity to come into your throne room and to cry out to you to bring our needs to you. And Lord, our needs are great. And we come to you because your supply houses are full of all that we need and so much more. I thank you, Lord, for the dads that are represented in this service this morning. I thank you for the work that these men do in leading their uh, families and molding the lives of the children that are in their homes. Lord, some of these fathers are young and others are older. Some 
have younger children who are in the home and others have older children both in the home and out of the home. Some have grandchildren. Some of the dads in our congregation, Lord, have great grandchildren. Some of these dads represented in our church family, Lord, have children that are walking with you, believing in Christ for their salvation. And some have children that have not believed in Christ and are not walking in your ways. So some of our dads are rejoicing and others are weeping and some are doing a combination of rejoicing and weeping and praying. Father, we ask this morning that you would bless the dads of Cornerstone in a very special way that you would help them to understand the power that they possess, how important their ministry is, how fraught with eternal significance their labor is from day to day. I pray, Lord, that you would give to each father exactly the grace that he needs to be the kind of father that his children need for him to be at whatever stage of life and maturity they are at. Help these fathers, Lord, above all, to mirror your image to their children. Help them by the lives that they lead, by the example that they set, by the things that they do and say and how they go about relating to their children. Help these fathers, Lord, through all of these means to show their children what you, Father, are like. And when we as dads, Lord, fail to do these things the way that we ought, help us to give our children the gift of a repentant father. Help us as dads to be the biggest repenter that our children know. May all of the children of Cornerstone know what it is like to have a dad who knows how to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? I pray, Lord, that you would use all of the fathers and mothers in the Cornerstone family to bring up together a godly generation of men and women who will, Lord, be champions of the faith and who will know their God and who will do great exploits in the name of Jesus in this increasingly darkened age in which we live. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be a servant to these fathers and mothers and to all of my brothers and sisters in the coming moments as we break open your holy word. And I pray that you would have your way with each of us. And we ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you guys can turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, we're going to try to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, and the title of the message is A Revolutionary Lifestyle. A revolutionary lifestyle. We're living in a time where we find ourselves looking at problems that plague our society, and we want to do something meaningful to fix those problems. We want to engage in some kind of social action that can make a real and lasting difference in this world. We want to do something radical, something revolutionary that will make a difference and serve to make this country and this world a better place. Back in the 1950s, a man named Bob Pierce had just such a desire. He felt a burden to do something about world hunger. So he founded World Vision. And in 1970, he founded Samaritan's Purse. And he gave his life to meeting the needs of the hungry around the world 
and he did a tremendous amount of good. Meanwhile, he neglected his family. One of his daughters said, and I quote, Daddy had an agreement with God. He would feed and care for God's children overseas if God would take care of his wife and children at home. Unfortunately, the agreement was daddy's and not God's, unquote. So consumed was Bob Pierce with meeting the needs of the hungry around the world that he would travel sometimes for 10 months out of the year and be away from his family. On those short spells when he was home with his family, he was practically a visitor in his own home. In her book, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya, Ruth Tucker says, and I quote, Though he, Bob Pierce, could sympathetically relate to the world, his own family living under his own roof seemed far away, unquote. Near the end of one of Bob's trips through Asia, he and his wife, Lorraine, received a phone call from their oldest daughter, Sharon. In that phone call, Sharon urgently pleaded with her dad to come home. She had experienced bouts of depression before, and she was now struggling again, and she pled with him to return home. Bob's wife, Lorraine, who was with him, knew better than to take the situation lightly, but Bob was planning an unscheduled trip to Vietnam, and he refused to be deterred from his plans. Lorraine flew home and left Bob in Asia. She flew home and found Sharon in the hospital with her wrist bandaged, recovering from an unsuccessful attempt to take her own life. Sharon was very grateful to see her mom, but she really wanted to see her dad. She said to her mom, I know you love me, mama, but I just needed to feel daddy's arms around me. Later that year, Sharon made another attempt at suicide, and this time she succeeded. And Bob and Lorraine buried their oldest daughter at the age of 27. Sometime thereafter, Bob left his wife, Lorraine, and moved into a nearby apartment. Lorraine prayed that he would one day return to her, but they lived separately until his death in 1978. Bob Pierce had given his life to a great, a good, and noble cause, and he accomplished a lot of good, and he forgot about his most important service in this world, his service to his wife and children. And I don't share this story with you this morning in order to persuade you not to care about the social ills that plague our world today. If you love God and you love your fellow man who is created in the image of God, you should care about the problems that plague our world today, and you should want to do something about those problems but I share this story to remind you that if you are a mother or a father, the greatest thing you can do for our world today is to tend to your spouse and to your children. If you wish to bring institutional change to society, the best thing you can do is give priority to tending to the institution of your marriage and the institution of your family. And a failure to do such things brings a whole host of social evils down upon a society. Statistics sadly show that only 17% of black youth make it to their high school graduation living in a home with a mom and a dad whose marriage is intact. 
And for the other 83%, that often means doing without their father. And as Barack Obama himself has said, and I quote, we all know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. That being the case, we moms and dads render our society a tremendous service when we love our spouses and we raise our children in the nurture and the discipline of the Lord. It's one of our greatest gifts to society. If you are a parent, it is your children who will one day leave your home and populate the various institutions of society. You can make a difference in those institutions by raising God-fearing children who will make those institutions better than they otherwise would be. As Kevin DeYoung said just this past week, Elections have consequences, but families have more. So if you are a parent and you truly want to be a revolutionary, love your spouse and raise your children to be God-fearing men and women who abound in good works and you will contribute greatly to the flourishing of society. This is actually Moses' burden as he speaks to the Israelites on the threshold of the promised land that they are about to enter. They're about to bring revolution to the land of Canaan. They're about to enter the land of Canaan and overthrow the wicked Canaanites and replace their culture, the Canaanite culture, with a new culture the likes of which the world has never yet seen in any land And each of the Israelites listening to Moses has a role to play in that. In order to make this dream a reality, they must do more than merely make war against the Canaanites and tear down statues and idols and drive out the Canaanites. They must do more than march around the walls of Jericho and shout until the walls come tumbling down. They must each, on the other side of those achievements, set about to living the kind of life that can contribute to the building of a good and noble society, a God-fearing society that God could bless. And Moses tells them what they must do in order to make that happen. Observe what he says to them in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life. O Israel, you should listen. And be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So we know that what Moses is about to give the children of Israel is a pattern to follow, a strategy that is designed to help each of them to contribute constructively to the building of a righteous society that God can bless. And as we look at our text this morning, beginning in verse 4, I want us to observe the sixth-fold strategy that Moses gives and learn for ourselves six things that we will want to do in order to contribute constructively to the building of a righteous society that God can bless. And the first thing we learn that we must do, you're all ready to act and do something. Here's the first thing. Listen to God. Just stop and listen to God. 
In verse 3, Moses has already told the Israelites that they should listen. And here in verse 4, he begins by saying, Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel, he says. And the Hebrew word that is translated here is the word Shema, which is why this section of Deuteronomy 6 is called the Shema by the Jews. This word means to listen with the intention of obeying. It's the way a slave listens to his master. It's the way military troops listen to the voice of their commander. And because this command appears first, we can infer that Moses is calling upon the people of Israel and calling upon us not merely to listen to God, but to listen to Him as a first resort. There have been multiple seasons in my life when I did not listen to God. I walked according to my own wisdom and I ignored God's counsel. I walked in my own stubborn ways. Eventually, I walked into a whole world of hurt on the other side of which I came to God and said, okay, God, I'm listening. In such moments, I was finally listening to God. But unfortunately, I was listening to Him as a last resort. In contrast to this, Moses calls upon us to listen to God as a first resort. If you're a young person here this morning, I don't know that I can tell you anything better than this. Listen to God at the age you are now as a first resort. One day you will listen, but it's better to listen as a first resort rather than as a last resort. If you really want to have a revolutionary impact on our society today, you must begin by listening to God. In this very passage, Moses is going to call upon the people of Israel to act and to talk and even to post things. But he first calls upon them to listen, and that's how we must begin as well. True revolutionaries fall silent and listen to God in His Word, and they listen to His voice above all other voices that are vying for their attention. There are many people right now who are clamoring to have your ear. But God calls upon you to listen to Him above anyone else. And if there's ever been a time to listen to Him above all else, it is today. Just this past week, Cameron Dobbins, a former member of Cornerstone posted these words on Facebook. He said, don't let news networks disciple you. Don't let news networks disciple you more than Jesus and His Word. That's good counsel. Open your Bibles and listen to God if you really want to make a difference in our society today. This is Father's Day, so let me say something to the dads here as dads, there's nothing that we as dads want more than for our children to listen to us. There's nothing worse than that glazed look in our children's eyes as we're trying to lecture them with some wisdom that we have. We desperately want them to listen to us. But how are we doing in listening to God? We come to God as he speaks to us in this passage and says, God, I want my children to listen to me. What should I do? And God looks at us and says, you listen to me. Are we listening to God with a heart that stands ready to obey him? Or do we just want everyone else to listen to us? Dad's one of the greatest favors that you can do for your wife and do for your children and for this society is to listen to God by reading your Bible with a heart that is open to God. What your children need more than almost anything else is a dad who is listening to God. But Moses doesn't stop there. There's a second thing we will want to do if we wish to be a revolutionary and contribute 
constructively to the building of a righteous society that God can bless. Number two, love God with all of our being. Love God with all of our being. We must listen and we must love God. Listen to what Moses says in verses 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. At the core of Moses' vision here is love, a passionate love in the hearts of the people of Israel for God. And we see that in the language that he uses in verses 4 and 5. Notice how Moses expresses this. First of all, he says, the Lord is our God. Moses is excitedly exclaiming this truth that Jehovah is our God. This is the language of possession that is born out of loving enthusiasm. The kind of language expressed when a man says to a woman, you are my girl. Or a woman says to a man, you are my man. And here Moses is saying, God himself with all of his glorious perfections is our God. Can you believe it? We do not merely belong to him. We are not merely his, but he belongs to us as the God who rules over us and cares for us and meets our every need. Moses also says, Jehovah is one. In saying this, Moses is not simply trying to make a statement about the ontological oneness of God. A part of what he's saying is, Jehovah is number one. In terms of priority, Moses is wanting us to join him in saying that God is far and away our first priority. With everything else, a distant second and third and fourth Moses is also saying here that Jehovah is the one and only God. The Canaanites had multiple deities to cover their every need. But Moses is calling upon Israel to celebrate the fact that Jehovah is the one and only God they're ever going to need. He alone is God and there is no other. Let other people have their multiple deities to make sure that all of their needs are covered the Israelites have one God who meets their every need. And Moses is saying this Jehovah is our God and He is our one and only. And in verse 5, he calls upon the people of Israel to love this God saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, they are not just to love Him, but to love Him with every fiber of their being, holding nothing back. In the gospel accounts, Jesus will refer back to this command as the single greatest commandment in all of the law. In other words, all of the law is to be summed up in this one command to love God with all of one's being. And this is what Moses is calling upon us to do here. The best thing that you and I can do for our society today is to love God first and foremost with all of our being. The best gift that we parents can give to our children is to love God even more than we love our children. For it is only when we love God first and foremost are we then positioned to even love our children as we ought. Why must we love God first and foremost? Well, obviously because He is worthy, but also because only God can live up to the demands of that love and bear the weight of that love. Think about it, guys. If we allow ourselves to love anything more than God, we will crush that person with our expectations or crush them with our angry disappointment when they fail to provide us with what only God can provide us with. No one whom we love can bear that burden of deity. This is why C.S. Lewis says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, 
I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. We know from the New Testament that we can only truly love God when we experience and then contemplate how He has loved us through Christ. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. And then we contemplate that love and keep it ever before us. As Charles Spurgeon says, love must feed on love. The very soul and life of our love to God is His love to us. So if you want to love God with all of your being, allow yourself to be lost in His love for you. For us as Christians, we nurture in our hearts a love for God by first cherishing how He has loved us through the death and resurrection of His Son and through the grace that He has shown to us through Christ. And if you've never experienced that in the first place, you will never be able to love God. Only people who have experienced God's love through Christ are able to love God as they ought. Then we can really love Him in response to Him first loving us. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that the person who is forgiven little loves little. And the person who is forgiven much loves much. So it's only as we begin to comprehend the magnitude of our sin and the greatness of the grace that God has shown to us in Christ that we can truly love God with all of our might as we should. This is the love of forgiven sinners who are madly in love with the one who has graciously forgiven them. You might at this point be thinking, Pastor Milton, this is Father's Day. I was hoping for some parenting tips. Yet this sermon so far isn't telling me anything about how to parent my children. All you're doing so far is telling me to listen to God, and now you're telling me to love God. What does that have to do with parenting? Well, let me tell you what it does have to do with parenting I'll tell you why Moses' counsel here is profoundly applicable to you as a parent. Like it or not, your affections are the most contagious thing about you. So be very careful what you love. You can teach your children all the right things with your words but the greater likelihood is that your children will be influenced more by your loves than they are by your lectures. I became a Steeler fan in 1973 and have been a fan ever since. I love the Steelers and everything about them. And guess what? Amazingly, all four of my children love the Pittsburgh Steelers. How did that happen? Did I disciple them in the ways of Steeler Nation? Did I catechize them in the Pittsburgh Steelers and everything about them? No, I just loved them. And my love for them as a team was contagious. Your affections as a dad and as a mom are the most contagious thing about you. So be very careful what you love. Jim Berg says this beautifully. Listen to what he says, and I quote, The next generation must be tempted with God. They must see by our passionate, God-loving lives that He is good, that He is delightful, and that He is desirable to make one wise. We must tempt them with God. And I love the language of that. One of your primary tasks as a parent is to tempt your children with God and to tempt the world with God, to show them how good and delightful and desirable God is, and you show them God's greatness primarily through your passionate, God-loving life. And it'll make you a powerful parent and citizen. There's a third thing we will want to do if we wish to be 
a revolutionary who contributes constructively to the building of a righteous society that God can bless. Number three, let's word it this way, let God's words be on your heart. Let God's word, God's words be on your heart all the time. Observe what Moses says in verse 6. He says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be where? On your heart. In other words, we are to take the words of God recorded in His Word and put them on our hearts. And then those words are to stay upon our hearts. God's words are not merely to be on our bookshelf or on our iPhone Bible app, but upon our hearts. When we say nowadays that something is on our heart, what we mean is that it's on our minds and that it's front and center in our consciousness. When you say to someone, you've been on my heart all day, what you're telling them is that you've been thinking about them all day and that you can't get them out of your mind. And likewise, Moses is telling us that we are to meditate on God's Word day and night. As we've been saying to you in recent weeks, we are living in days that confront us with many complex issues that defy easy solutions. And if you and I are going to have any chance at thinking rightly through these issues, we must be deep and careful thinkers on God's Word who have God's Word constantly on our hearts. And if you're thinking that five minutes a day of just sipping from the Word of God and then moving on and not even thinking about it, if you think that's going to be sufficient to get you through these days, you're sadly mistaken. You won't have the equipment to sort through any of the issues that are confronting us now. At the same time, it's easy to see the direction that our society is heading and we may sometimes find ourselves shaking our heads and wishing that God's Word was upon the hearts of the people of our society. But we ought to first look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, is God's Word really reaching my heart? As a parent, you may long for God's Word to reach the hearts of your children, but are you allowing God's Word to reach your own heart? What is on your heart, Dad? Is it the words of God or is it lust? Is it money? Is it worry? Is it grievances against people who have wronged you? One of the best things that we as dads and moms can do for our children is to meditate day and night upon God's Word, letting it continuously be on our heart. And why is that? Well, there's many reasons but here's one, because God's Word will likely penetrate into your children about as deeply as you've allowed it to penetrate into you. If God's Word penetrates only your mind, it will likely only penetrate the mind of your children. But if God's Word penetrates into your heart and life, chances are better that God's Word will go that deep into your children. Speaking of which, there's a fourth thing that we will want to do if we want to be revolutionaries who contribute to the building of a righteous society that God can bless. Number four, teach God's words to your children. Teach God's words to your children. After telling parents to have God's word upon their hearts, Moses then speaks these words in verse 7, saying, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down at night, and when you rise up in the morning. Notice the flow of thought here. You as a parent must first have the words of God upon your own heart, and then you teach those words that are on your heart to your children. God's words don't merely pass from a page to your children, but they are to pass through your heart to your children as you teach them 
diligently to them. The Hebrew word that is translated teach diligently literally means to engrave. We're to engrave God's words upon our children. More specifically, it means to sharpen something so as to make it able to penetrate. The same word is used in Deuteronomy 32, 41, where the text says, I sharpen my flashing sword. And the Hebrew word translated sharpen in Deuteronomy 32, 41 is the same word that Moses is using here in our passage today. So in Deuteronomy 6, 7, we're commanded to do more than simply speak truth to our children. We're quite literally instructed to engrave God's truth upon the hearts of our children in the hopes that the truth we teach them will penetrate deeply into them. That raises a question, and that is how can we help to ensure that God's Word goes deeply into our children. And we could come up with an amazing list of 20, 30, 40 things. Let me give you seven very quickly. First of all, be a good example, mom and dad. A message from a life reaches a life. The Word of God is at its sharpest and can pierce the deepest when it is read in the life of another. If we as parents live one way, yet teach our children to live another way, our children will more likely follow the way we actually live more than how we're telling them to live. The way we live impacts our children more deeply than the words we speak. And even if, as a dad or a mom, you fail to be a good example for your children, that now gives you the opportunity to be an example of repentance and change. So don't underestimate the power of repentance to impact your children with God's truth. Secondly, of the seven suggestions, be willing to discipline your children. In Hebrews 12, we learn that whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Are we better than God? To say, well, I don't want to discipline my children. No, if you love your children, you should be willing to discipline them when necessary, just like God, who loves us, is willing to discipline us. In Proverbs 22, 15, the Bible says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So, discipline, properly and lovingly, applied is something that we do for our children. There's a number of things my dad said to me over the years, and I blew off what he said. But after he disciplined me, I remembered. Amazing. A miracle happened, and I remembered what he said. It went deeper into me. And I'm thankful that he was willing to lovingly discipline me. Thirdly, encourage and affirm your children don't just be a disciplinarian. When your children do something right that is consistent with the Word of God, affirm them. Make a big deal out of the good that they did. Celebrate the good that you see in your children. Celebrate evidences of grace and beauty that you see in them, and you will thereby create an atmosphere that can sustain the rebukes when those rebukes are necessary. Fourthly, be patient with your children. We are never, as parents, more unheard by our children than when we're manifesting an angry impatience towards them. We, ourselves, as parents, don't usually understand and receive all of God's counsel to us the very first time that He delivers that counsel to us. Yet God keeps on teaching us and manifesting great patience toward us, and we are to be like Him in our dealings with our children and to teach them with great patience and doctrine. Fifth, fifthly, be ready at all times to speak truth in opportune moments. As the text says here in verse 7, you shall talk of them. In other words, the words of God. When you sit in your house and 
when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Our children's hearts are not always open to the truth. They're like windows or doors that open and close at various moments. But if God's words are upon our hearts as parents at all times and we're sensitive to the Spirit, then we'll be ready to speak God's truth in those moments when the door of our children's hearts swing open at opportune moments. The most life-impacting things that my mom or dad ever said to me were not in formal family meeting times. It was during random times when they just said something that was true and it resonated deeply with me and I've heard it in my head a thousand times since. On numerous occasions, I've gone back to my mom and my dad and I've told them something that they said to me on such and such occasion and told them what a difference that has made in my life and my mom and dad have no memory of ever saying that to me. No memory of that moment because it was just an ordinary moment when they said something true to me that went down deep and changed me and continues to speak to me. Parents, you never know when those moments may come. Just do life with your kids and be ready to speak God's Word to them in timely moments. Sixth suggestion. If you want your teaching of God's truth to penetrate into the hearts of your children... You ready for this? Be succinct. And I'll try to be succinct in how I make this point. Sometimes we parents can talk too much. And sometimes we would better serve our children with shorter speeches. If you want your children to feel free to ask you questions, then don't take an hour to answer the first question that they ask you. Or you may discourage them from ever wanting to ask you a question again. There's actually a reason, I think, that the book of Proverbs is written the way that it is. Proverbs is a divinely inspired parenting manual. And it's not coincidental that it is full of succinctly stated Proverbs. And I think Solomon is saying something to parents, even in the way the book is structured, teaching us. That not always, but it is often better for parents to speak to their children in Proverbs, not in pages. Be succinct. Seventh, pray for your children. We are told in the Bible that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. It's only by a miracle of the Holy Spirit that God's truth can be discerned and received by our children. So we must pray for our children's hearts, asking God to open their hearts to receive God's truth, and then praising God in prayer for each moment when they do, and giving Him full credit. I'm sure we could add other things to the list, but following these suggestions will at least go a long way towards helping you to engrave the truth of God upon the hearts of your children and thereby contribute to the making of a righteous society that God can bless. There's a fifth thing that we should do in order to contribute to this kind of society. Number five, model a life of full surrender to the Lordship of Jehovah. Model a life of full surrender to the Lordship of Jehovah. Listen to what Moses counsels the Israelites to do in verses 8 and 9. Speaking of the words of God and the commandments of God, he says, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They didn't have Facebook back then, so this is where they could post things on their forehead, on their hand, on the doorpost of their house, and on their gates. And there's a lot that we can say here, but let's try to keep this as practical and simple as we can. Moses here is telling the Israelites literally to post things. And these are not meaningless posts. It's not virtue signaling, even though it actually became that in the centuries that followed. 
Notice that Moses uses the word sign in verse 8, indicating that these things serve as signs which signify something. What they signify is that Jehovah is the Lord over every area and that His words truly apply to everything. Moses is telling God's people to put markers which serve as signs of the Lordship of Jehovah over absolutely every area of their life. Bind them as a sign on your hand means that their hands belong to God. As frontals on your forehead means that their mind belongs to God. Write them on the doorpost of your house means that their home belongs to God. You shall write them on your gates means that the way they conduct business and the way they handle civic affairs and do their politics belongs to God and is fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jehovah where His Word is fully brought to bear upon those things. In other words, Moses is calling upon the people of God to live a cohesive life in which Jehovah is the Lord of every area. Instead of living a compartmentalized life in which Jehovah is the Lord of some areas but not other areas, Moses is calling upon them and us to model a life of full surrender to God in every area of life. My thoughts, my hands, my home, my business, my politics, my driving on the freeway, my shopping, my hobbies, my time, my entertainments, my clothes, my taxes, my trials, bringing all areas under the Lordship of Jehovah. God's Word, the Word of Jehovah is to be what controls and governs every area of life. You cannot have God's Word controlling one part of your life, but then have worldly philosophies controlling other parts of your life. No, God's Word is to control every area of your life because it's fully sufficient as you live your life surrendered to the Lordship of Jehovah. Parents, if you do not want your children to leave the faith, then show them that the Christian faith is worth taking with you into every area of your life. If you allow the Christian faith to apply to one area of your life, but not another area, and your children watch you walk out of this one area, and you don't even take your faith with you into this other area, you're literally teaching your children how to leave the faith. They've watched you do that thousands of times. And their thought is, I guess, the faith is not all that important because I see mom and dad leaving it as they move from one compartment of their life to another. If we don't want our children to leave the faith, we should pray that God would prevent that from happening and trust His sovereignty, but also at the very least, we would want to deem the Christian faith worth bringing with us into every area of our life. There's one final thing we should do if we want to contribute constructively to the flourishing of society. Number six, be ever mindful of God's saving grace toward you. Be ever mindful of God's saving grace toward us. Um, listen to what Moses says beginning in verse 10. We'll just look at this very quickly. He says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, you shall eat... And you shall eat and be satisfied. Verse 12, then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Moses is telling the children of Israel that once they get into the promised land, they're never to let themselves forget about the slavery from which they were saved. They're never to let themselves forget the Lord who saved them from that slavery. They are to remember 
that the great and splendid blessings that they now enjoy in the land of promise are blessings that God has given to them. They didn't create these blessings, but God has provided them for them as a generous display of His grace. This is what Moses wants the children of Israel to remember. And in fact, if you keep reading through Deuteronomy 6, you'll find that later in the chapter, verse 20 and beyond, he's telling parents to make sure that they're telling this story of deliverance and redemption to their children. Whenever their children come to them and say, what do these commandments mean? The parents are to tell them the gospel story of their redemption from Egypt and of God's goodness by way of explaining to them what God's commandments mean. In the same way, we as Christians need to remember always our former slavery to sin. We should not forget the pit from which God has dug us. We need to remember that the present blessings we have in Jesus Christ through His blood shed on the cross are blessings that we have not earned, but they have been given to us as gracious gifts of God's grace simply through faith in Jesus. We should never forget the God who delivered us from our lost condition. We should never forget the God who saved us and who brought us into this salvation in Christ, giving us blessings we have not earned. And we should be ready to speak of these things to all, including our children. Keeping the gospel realities that I'm talking about in our minds will serve to keep us humble and grateful. Keeping these realities in mind will dispose us to give grace to others who are right now as we once were before Christ saved us. Keeping these realities in mind will dispose us to love others with the same kind of gracious love that God has loved us with. Keeping these realities in mind will equip us to share the gospel with our children at every opportunity. Keeping these realities in mind will remind us that God is the Savior and we are not. Our job is to live as He calls us to live in this passage and to let Him be the Savior for us and for anyone else whose life we touch. Then we can declare Him to others and make Him known, telling them that if God could save us and work so graciously and generously in our life, He can do the same for them. Now you'll notice, parents, that in looking at these six instructions, that only one of them has something specifically to do with what you do in connection with your children. The rest have to do with who you are and how you live your life. And we all know why that's appropriate, right? Apparently, God's Word tastes best to your children when it comes to them packaged in the form of a parent who listens to God and loves God and meditates on God's Word and is fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jehovah and who is mindful of the salvation that they themselves have received and that it's all of God's generous grace. So we should pray as parents that God's truth might come to our children in this kind of parental package of an authentic life of full devotion to God. It is also true that we as Christians wield the greatest influence in society when we listen to God and love God and meditate on God's Word and teach our children God's truth and fully surrender to His Lordship and keep the gospel at the center of our consciousness. Whatever else you might want to do to address society's problems and create a better society, make sure, parents, you do these things. And don't underestimate the difference that you can make by simply doing the things that we have learned today. This week, early this week, Pastor Mike Berry sent me a link to a blog written by Craig 
Thompson, which fits so beautifully with the message today. I'd like to end my message by reading to you what Craig Thompson wrote. This is for you moms and dads who really want to make a difference in this world with all the craziness and you wonder, can I really make any difference? Craig Thompson writes as follows, This morning I sat on my porch before there was enough daylight to read my Bible. It is unseasonably cool, 65 degrees and breezy. There I sat with my coffee and my dog, enjoying the beauty of creation. The birds sang, the dog ran, the porch lights behind me flickered just a bit. Then I remembered, there are race riots rocking our country and COVID-19 is rising rapidly in my own state. I was struck by the strangeness of the situation. Around me, people are being rocked by tragedy, and yet I was sitting enjoying a small slice of paradise. I read my Bible, and I prayed. I prayed for my neighbors and for my world. But as I did, I was also reminded that I can't change the whole world every day. Every single day does not extend me an opportunity to impact the whole world. But every single day I have is an opportunity to impact the five other people who live in my house. I can tend my own garden. With so much chaos in the world around us, it can be easy to be paralyzed by the complexity of the situation. The Israelites were surely tempted to be overwhelmed by the complexity of their captivity in Babylon. Yet when Jeremiah wrote to them, his encouragement was, quote, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's from Jeremiah 29, 5-7. Craig goes on to say this, I can't hope or expect to change the world every day, but maybe that isn't my job. Instead of trying to change the whole world in a single stroke, maybe I should focus on tending my own garden. I can teach my children to love Jesus and to care about justice and live a life that honors the Lord. Do we turn our back on a culture that is suffering? Absolutely not. But we live in the reality that our first priority is our own garden. Before I can hope to impact the world beyond my own front door, I have to impact the people under my own roof. He goes on to say, we live in a culture that seems to believe that tweets and hashtags will revolutionize society. I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe that it may come a little differently. In fact, in an age of social unrest and societal upheaval, the most revolutionary thing we can do might be to tend our own gardens by loving God and our neighbors and investing in healthy families. In so doing, maybe we will change the welfare of the cities where God has placed us. And there we may discover that in the welfare of our communities, we will find our welfare as God intended it. This morning, my front porch was calm. The weather was perfect. The birds were chirping. The world is still broken. But a better day is coming, and the early dawn hours reminded me of that. So today, I prayed for my neighbors, and I prayed for my world. I know that today, I won't change the whole world, but I know that today, I can love my kids and lead them toward Jesus. Today, I can love my wife well. And today, that is a win. Unquote. Before you look down on this man's contribution to society, think about how blessed his family is to have such 
a man leading that household. Imagine that instead of being on this porch on this particular morning, reading his Bible and thinking these thoughts and praying and resolving what he will do, imagine that instead of doing that, he was getting drunk on whiskey or running off with some other woman or abusing his kids or abandoning them altogether, leaving it up to society to clean up his messes and to take care of his wife and children for him leaving his sons and daughters to grow up without a godly father. You see, guys, the, the real revolutionaries in our society are not the thugs wearing the Che Guevara t-shirt and overturning police cars. It's men like Craig Thompson. It's men like you who, with a Bible in your hands, are listening to God, loving God, loving your wife and loving your children and seeking to grow and living a life in full submission to the Lordship of Jehovah and seeking to bring up your children and influence others to do the same. Those are the revolutionaries and don't let anyone tell you differently. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, the cry of our heart is that you would make us these kinds of men and women who listen to you, who love you above all, who devour your word and place your word upon our hearts, meditating on it day and night, who seek to teach our children and others your ways. who seek to grow in living a life in full surrender to your good and sweet, awesome lordship, and who are forever mindful of the grace of the gospel by which we have been saved. There is no greater gift that we can give to our children there is no greater gift that each of us, adults and children, that we can give to our society than to live this way and be used of you to influence others towards righteousness and a lifestyle of loving you and loving others. We cannot make ourselves this way, Lord. I just pray that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would summon us and that we would feel that summons in a deeper way than ever to rise up and to live this way and thereby to glorify you and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,